We're going to be in 2 Timothy. Let's go ahead and get there. 2 Timothy. We start this morning. I wanted to start last week. I told God I'm going to be ready and good to go the week before Thanksgiving. He said, no. So we're going to do this morning what I wanted to do last week. Uh, But it's still timely and still appropriate. In fact, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is so essential to our walk with Him and to our faith. So we're going to look at 2 Timothy, just the first few verses to open up and get a feel for the book and see what the Lord would say to us today. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. Father, bless now the teaching of Your Word. We know, Lord, Your Word does not come back to You empty. We know that You have a desire that Your Word would get into the hearts of men and women. That we would hear You and be drawn to You and understand and know You, Father. This is Your desire. This is what You set out to do, to to break through those barriers that would separate an eternal, all-existent, omnipresent, omniscient God from a temporal people. Lord, You have given us Your Word, and now I just pray You'd bring revelation by this Word. Through Your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, legend has it, and I cannot confirm or deny this as a true story, but it's an old legend dating back to the 1800s. He arrived at Ellis Island at that time, a poor, disheveled Greek immigrant with a strange name. Now, his last name wasn't so strange. Pretty uh, common, I guess, last name, or not difficult to pronounce. His last name was Polly. Polly, easy enough. But he realized his first name was going to be problematic in the new land. As he spoke his entire name, people seemed confused, didn't seem to understand what it was he was saying. So he found a kindly official who decided to help him out in transliterating his name into English, and so he converted it to F, as in Frank, Harry Stowe. So his entire name, F. Harry Stowe Polly, and everywhere he went, he spoke his name and left a legacy of thankfulness. F. Harry Stowe Polly. You see, the Greek word Polly means many. The Greek word F. Haristo means thanks. Many thanks, much thanksgiving, much thankfulness. That's what his name meant. That's why apparently, if legend be true, he was named what he was, F. Harry Stowe Polly. F. Harry Stowe, dash Polly. And he would carry that name with him and speak that name, and it was a proclamation of thanksgiving, again, wherever he went. Now, I know thanksgiving is over. I know it's leftovers. I get that. But I want you to savor 
the favor of Thanksgiving a little longer. Not the flavor of Thanksgiving, but the favor of Thanksgiving. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit here. But as I already shared with you, I have so much thankfulness. So much to be thankful for. I am thankful to be up and out of the house. To be walking in boots rather than slippers. To be walking rather than shuffling. I was sharing earlier with some sisters that I felt like this, you know, 95-year-old men. And man, and 95-year-old men, no offense, but I felt like I was at a point where shuffling was the best I could do. A trip from the bedroom to the kitchen was a huge victory. You know, I'm so thankful to be out of that season and, and to be moving on from that. I am thankful to be here this morning. I, I look forward to being back here for four weeks. And not because I didn't think things would be well covered. Not because I thought that you needed me so desperately. I just wanted to be here. And I'm so thankful to be here. And I really want to talk about why this morning. And we see why right here in the beginning of the last of the pastoral epistles of Paul. This is the final letter. What has been called Paul's swan song. And it's a good term for the letter. This is his final bow. The last curtain, if you will. But there's no applause There is no acclaim. In fact, there is little or no audience Paul writes to Timothy. Luke is with him. The word will get out to Onesiphorus, a friend who we'll hear about later, and perhaps even John Mark. But beyond these scant few individuals, there's no one there to acclaim the life of an apostle lived, the the mission that had been, even at that time, so successful in the planting of churches and the spread of Christianity, no one to stand up and say, way to go, Paul. No cheers. Of all Paul's letters, in fact, this one is his most personal. It's his most painful. And it is by far, in my opinion, the most poignant. It's 67 AD, and even as he writes or dictates this letter, Paul is sitting in a dark, depressing dungeon on death row. This is not like his first imprisonment in Rome. When he wrote all the prison letters that we studied earlier this year, this isn't where he's in a rented apartment, you know, chained to a soldier, but at least in his own space, being able to move about there and and have friends and and visitors come in and, and go, no, now he is in a dungeon. In fact... Today, tradition tells us at least you can visit that, that pit. It literally is a dark, dank, cold pit where he was living out his final days. And soon Paul will be executed by the executive order of none other than Nero himself. So the situation in which Paul writes this letter is dire. It's depressing, it's dark, and that's what makes those first three words of verse 3 so much more profound. I thank God. I thank God. Can you say that in your darkness? In moments of greatest despair, depression? When nothing seems right? when, When the future is incredibly bleak? When you don't know if you'll ever get up out of bed or ever be visited by a friend again or ever get out of the mess that you're in, can you, like Paul, say, I thank God? It's how he starts this letter. Now, it's not a new concept for Paul. I mean, in all, he is an incredibly thankful man. He gives thanks to God 
and to Jesus some 40 different times throughout His 13 letters. Romans 1.8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2.14, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Philemon 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Paul is always thanking God. But to thank God in these circumstances, that's impressive. Paul was thankful even while sitting in a Roman death cell, knowing his time was short. And what I just want to do as we open the letter this morning is look at Paul's thanksgiving spread. Check out what Paul puts on the table before us. Again in verse 3 he says, I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience. I'll give you four things to jot down if you're a note taker. And the first one is simply this. Paul is thankful from a clear conscience. Paul is thankful from a clear conscience. Now, we read back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, it was kind of the verse we kept repeating over and over, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But this is not a good conscience. Paul doesn't say, I thank God from a good conscience. No, he says, I thank God from a clear conscience. Which is remarkable because at the very end of his life, with miles behind him, Paul is able to say, my conscience is clear. And I thank God from that place. My friends, it's not just a good conscience we need, it is a clear conscience. The reality is you will never gain a good conscience by your own work. What we need is a clear conscience, because a clear conscience is what makes for true thanksgiving. Genuine, authentic thanksgiving comes from a clear conscience. What do you mean, Rick? Clear, the word clear here is katharos. And it's where we get our word cathartic. And it means clean, washed, pure, blameless. I thank God from a blameless conscience. I thank God from a place of of knowing I am completely, 100%, utterly washed and clean. My thankfulness comes rushing out of that place and it is the grace of God alone that provides a complete catharsis. It's only God's grace that brings a person to a place of cleansing and clearing of the conscience so I can honestly and truly come before God and just be thankful. The clear conscience allows that thanksgiving to be authentic and genuine because there's no ulterior motives. Do you know what I mean? You're not showing up to try and maybe gain a little extra grace. Or to prove yourself. You don't take a sip of communion to get points for the week. Well, I was messy here, but I was clean here, so maybe it'll cancel itself out. A clear conscience doesn't come before God hoping to prove itself. The clear conscience just says, thank you, Lord. That's where truth thanksgiving flows from. Now, think about where we're at right now in our culture, in our society. It's remarkable to me. If you do wrong, in our world, if you do wrong, there are really three options if you think about it. You can either be blamed for it, you can pay for it, or you can try to bury it. 
If you look around right now, and you've been watching the news and paying attention to what's happening, we have been experiencing this explosion of past sin and indiscretion, especially in Hollywood and Washington. Now, that's not a big surprise. But the fact that so much of this stuff is coming out, things that have been buried or ignored or shunned for years, have surfaced. How horrifying to live a life wondering if that past stuff is coming up. If it's going to catch up with me. How hard do you have to run to stay out front of past indiscretions that may one day surface and reveal you for who you really are. And we're seeing this go on. And it's funny to me watching all the talking heads discussing all the issues and all the problems going on in our country and, and this director and, and this congressman and, and what they've done and how dare they and this past president, what he did. And you know what I've been thinking watching all of this? I haven't been thinking, ha ha, Hollywood, yeah, Washington. What I've been thinking is who has a right to make these judgments? Who among us as human beings has really the right to stand up and go, Oh, but he did, but, but she... Where do we get off thinking that we are so good that we can look at the past indiscretions of others and say, They need to pay for that. Well, have you paid for your sin? <laughs> but that's what our world does. We look for blame. And I say, who can fairly judge these things? The do not judgers are sure busy right now. You know what I mean? They're the ones who say, judge not, but you not be judged. And yet the moment the opportunity comes up for a human being to judge another, we do it. And especially those who don't want to be judged themselves. I think part of the human motivation for judgment is to put judgment off of us and onto others. Keep the focus off of me, you know, so that I won't get caught in my messes. Think about what Jesus really said. This is over in Matthew chapter 7. The whole do not judge phrase, uh, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. He's not just talking divinely, he's talking humanly. As you treat others, as you judge others, guess what? You're going to be judged the same way. We use the phrase, what goes around comes around. That's exactly what Jesus is referring to. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Which is one of the funniest things, by the way, that Jesus ever said. I mean, if you can grasp the picture for a moment, you turn your head to take the the speck out of your brother's eye, and the log hits them in the head because it's sticking out of your own face. And Jesus says, you hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine. They will trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus says, look, the way you treat other people, the way you judge other people, the way you look at other people, it's going to come back on you. If you're going to judge anybody, brothers and sisters, friends, family, this morning, if you're going to judge anyone, start with yourself. Judge you. I don't want to. I don't want to judge me. Because then I start to spiral down. Hey, listen. The grace of God 
allows me to look at myself and like Paul, thank God from a clear conscience. From a clear conscience. Why is it that people judge at all? Again, we have this, we have this innate sense of justice. It is there. It's in all people. We want justice. It comes from our just and fair God. And what the Lord can't do by nature, He cannot do this. He cannot look the other way. See, grace and mercy and forgiveness that God offers is not God just turning a blind eye to your sin. That is not what He's done. And therefore, your sin is still there. And therefore, if God chooses to, He might at any moment turn around, look at you, and smash you for it. That's not grace. Grace is catharsis. Grace is cleansing. Grace is allowing me to stand before God with His full view looking at me and I can praise Him and thank Him from a clear conscience because of what He has done. He took my blame on Himself. He took my deserved sin, your deserved sin, all of your past indiscretions. He has taken that stuff and put it on Himself. He wore it. He crushed it at the cross and He has washed us clean by His blood. That's a clear conscience. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.12, Our proud confidence is this. The testimony of our conscience. That in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. The genuinely forgiven are those who are free to be genuinely thankful. I thank God from a clear conscience. We don't sing, Jesus paid it some, most of what I owe. A few little things are hanging on. And so to hell I... No, that's not what we sing. (laughs) Jesus paid it all. Is there anything in your life that His blood cannot wash and cleanse? Is there anything in your life that you honestly think His grace is just not big enough for this indiscretion or for that sin? Paul is at the end. An entire lifetime. And by the way, some of the past indiscretions and sins of Paul were huge. Having to do with murder and brutality and an ego the size of the Middle East. And Paul says, I thank my God whom I serve from a clear or with a clear conscience. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That's a reference to the Old Testament sprinkling of the blood. And our bodies washed with pure water. A reference now to the New Testament baptism. That we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And only His blood can cleanse us so thoroughly that we, like Paul, can thank God from a clear conscience. Secondly, note this. Paul is thankful, I like this, by continuity. Not only from a clear conscience, but he's thankful by continuity. Verse 3 going on, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. The way my forefathers did. Literally, he says, from my forefathers. My thanksgiving right now flows from the thanksgiving of my forefathers. I'm just doing what they did. 
I'm just continuing in the same route. Paul tethers his thankfulness to his forefathers, saying, I have a heritage of gratitude, and it comes from them. I have learned this from them. I'm carrying this on from them. One of my favorite Christmas albums, I've already listened to it about 17 times. Starting Thursday evening, right after the last fork is set down in Thanksgiving, the Christmas music starts in my house. It's Bing Crosby's Merry Christmas Bing. I just love this one. Now, granted, there are a couple of odd song choices on it. Malakiliki Maka. Now, if you're Hawaiian, no offense, but come on. <laughs> Christmas in Killarney. If you're Irish, okay. But there's one song on there that the first time I got this old album back when I was a kid, one song I thought, well, that doesn't say anything about Christmas. There's no birth of Jesus, no Bethlehem, no manger, no little town, none of that. Why is this song, and I didn't really like it. In fact, on earlier mixtapes, I would just kind of skip that song. It's a hymn. I grew up in a hymn-singing church, and at that point in my life, I'd had enough of the hymns. You know what's funny? The older you get, the more you want the hymns back. What is that? I mean, you want a test of your aging? How much do you love hymns? Right? Huh? Yeah? Have you walked up to Rachel and said, can we sing some more hymns? Yeah, you are over 50, bud. The song is Faith of Our Fathers. Faith of Our Fathers. You know, it's being, I hear being singing it now. Faith of Our Fathers living still. In spite of dungeon, fire, and sword. Oh, how our hearts beat high with joy whenever we hear that glorious word. And then the chorus, faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to thee till death. I heard that over the weekend and I thought, wow, that's Paul. That's what Paul's saying. That's where Paul is right here at the beginning of this letter. It has nothing to do with Christmas. But that's continuity. Faith of our fathers. I like that. I like knowing that I'm surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I like realizing that what I'm doing, I have not come up with. This is not new. I didn't find this on my own and say, hey, here's a new thing for this generation. I am carrying on. I am in continuity. It is a continuity of thanksgiving. And by the way, that continuity predates Bing and Paul by millennia. We are in the flow of people who have been thanking God for thousands of years. Wow. Abel expressed an early form of thanksgiving through offering the best of his flock. Genesis 4.4 tells us. Noah. He offers up a sacrifice to God following the flood. Genesis 8.20 Abram offers sacrifice immediately upon upon being called by God. Genesis 12 verses 7 and 8. All of these express thanks through burnt offerings. And in fact, it's interesting to note in the Bible, the first use of the word thank, or thanksgiving, or thankful, any of those, the first use is in Leviticus chapter 7 verses 11 and 12 where the instructions for the thank offering or the peace offering are given. Where God actually works into Hebrew law the offering of thanksgiving. And thanksgiving really cuts loose when you get to the Psalms. All over the place. The psalmist, David, 
and the others, the sons of Asaph and, and the other psalmists, they're all just so thankful to God. Psalm 105, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Speak of all His wonders. Glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Man, just give thanks. And so we are among those who have been giving thanks to God for countless thousands of years. A continuity of thanksgiving. Do we thank God the way our forefathers did? Do we thank Him in such a fashion? Paul says, hey, Timothy, I got my thanksgiving from my forefathers just as you got yours. Look at verse 5. Skip down. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. The continuity of thanksgiving. In Timothy's case, not so much from four fathers, but four mothers. Or two mothers. Grandma and mom. And they're the ones who passed along this sense of worship and praise and, and thanksgiving and faith. An inheritance of thankful faith. That's what Timothy has. Paul says, you have it. I see it in you. I saw it in your mom. I know it's in your grandmother. You don't know much about Timothy's father. He was Greek. We know that. Was he a believer? He's not mentioned. In fact, Paul really becomes that spiritual father for Timothy. I'll share more about that perhaps Wednesday night. But here's a mother and a grandmother who pass along this continuity of thanksgiving, of a thankful faith, and it's in Timothy now. Paul says it's continuing. Psalm 22, verse 9. You are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts... Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Let me just say a word to those of you who were raised going to church. You were born on Saturday and in church on Sunday. Praise the Lord. Thank God for that continuity of faith. It is a huge blessing. If you weren't blessed in such a way, thank God that you have entered into that flow of faith now. And pass it on. Give it to your children. Pass it to your friends. Share it with those you love. An inheritance of thankful faith is by far the greatest gift you can ever give to anyone. You know, in that legend of F. Harry Stowe Polly, his mother, it said, was barren for 45 years. And when she became pregnant with him, she determined to name him F. Harry Stowe. In the Greek, thankful. So that... His name, when spoken, would carry on her thanksgiving on this nonstop line. And we share this. When, when we share thanks, when we give thanks, when people hear us with a thankful heart. Do you have a thankful heart in the workplace? Or more of a grumbling heart? Do your coworkers, do your friends, do your other students in, in your school, wherever you are, do people see you as and think of you as someone... man? She's just so thankful. She's always thanking God for something. The continuity of thanksgiving. Paul thanks God from a clear conscience, and he thanks God by multiplied generations of continuity. And, number three, he's thankful for or with consistency. He's thankful with consistency. Now, I'm not talking about the the same thing as continuity, that he's just consistently doing what was done before. I'm talking about in daily life, in Paul's approach 
to the day by day. He is thankful with consistency. Note this. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, unless you lack integrity, you can't say that unless you're doing it. And I would encourage you, don't ever say you're going to pray for someone unless you really are. Oh, you're not feeling well, I'll pray for you, bro. And then off we go and never do. In fact, the best thing to do is to stop and pray for them right there. Can I pray for you is much better than I will pray for you. Because you just do it. This is a Jewish thing. Prayer, morning, noon, night, consistency. Night and day. It wasn't just that Paul was a prayerful man, though he was, but he had been trained to a system of prayerfulness, a consistent prayerfulness. I think of some other fathers. Go back to Daniel. Daniel, as a young Hebrew, carried off into Babylonian captivity, maintained a consistency all his life. And as an older man, by the time you get to Daniel chapter 6, he's probably up in his 70s. And he has maintained a consistent life of thanksgiving when along comes an executive order from King Darius. For the next several weeks, no one is allowed to worship anyone but the king. Of course, all his satraps and commissioners and guys around him came up and said, Oh, king, oh, glorious one, we need to all only worship you. Signed the edict and they wanted to trap Daniel. You, You may know the story. Because they knew he prayed consistently. So let's, let's get the king to sign an edict saying you can't pray to anyone, and if you do, you're thrown into the lion's den. Well, what did Daniel do? Stop praying? Did he sneak off to his house? Close and lock the door? Go into the darkest little closet he could find? Close the door there and go, Dear Father, thanks for today. That's all i got time for. And then he's out. Yep. You know what he did. Daniel 6.10 He entered his house. Windows opened toward Jerusalem as was his custom and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Isn't that remarkable? He wasn't just praying. He was giving thanks. Lord, I am so thankful for this edict. I'm so thankful that the pressure is coming down hard on those of us who follow you here in Babylon. I'm so thankful that King Darius, who actually kind of likes me, uh, has now signed a very problematic uh, you know, order that I can't follow. Thank you, Lord. I mean, that's just weird praying, isn't it? Father, I'm so thankful I got written up at work today. <laughs> thankful that the boss is bearing down hard. I'm thankful that people are upset with me because I keep mentioning your name. Giving thanks. And for giving thanks, you know Daniel ended up on the Thanksgiving menu for a den of hungry lions. But all night long, not one of those lions profited. Get it? Daniel was a prophet. So they didn't... No? No? Okay. See, you lie in bed and these things come to your mind over the weeks. I should never have so much time to work on a single study as I had the last four weeks. Daniel 6.22, we're told that Daniel told King Darius the next morning, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me. You know what Thanksgiving does? Thanksgiving has the effect of shutting the lion's mouth. 
See, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in faith. I've read that verse many times. I would love to be firm in faith. How do I get there? There's more church services that I need, more Bible study. What, what do I do? You want to firm up your faith? Exercise thanksgiving. Be thankful. Thank God. Fill your daily plate. Again, with the Jews, morning, noon, and night. It was the daily prayers. I understand we don't have that kind of legalistic structure as followers of Jesus, but to pray morning, noon, and night is not a bad idea. Praying consistently. Thanking God consistently because the thankful heart recognizes that God is the one who shuts the lion's mouth. I think our best example of this kind of consistent thanks is Jesus. Ever just watch how He lived His life, reading through the Gospels. Pay attention to just the what characterized His behavior. Matthew 15.36, By the Sea of Galilee, He took the seven loaves and the fish, and in a feeding crisis, I mean, it was Thanksgiving, but nobody brought the turkey. What do we do here in the midst of that crisis? He breaks the bread, and the Bible tells us by giving thanks. He started giving them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. And you know everyone was fed. John 11.41, He's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, and He raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You heard me. I knew that You always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that You sent me. Note that. I thank You, Father, He says, in the presence of all these witnesses. Why? So they would know that what He was about to do was a sent-by-God thing. I'll tell you, thankfulness is a great witness. You want people to know that you were sent by God? That you serve Jesus? Just be thankful. They will not help but see that you are a servant of Jesus Christ if you walk in thankfulness. The thankfulness of Jesus is so compelling. We see Him up early, through the night, in the storms, on the shore, among the people, all alone, at the feasts, thanking God in prayer before the Father. From the rural Galilee to restless Gethsemane, Jesus was thankful. Wait, restless Gethsemane? How is sweating blood a picture of thankfulness? And where does Jesus say thank you when He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane about to be betrayed? Listen, He said in Matthew 26.39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, yet not as I will, but as You will. To pray, Your will be done, is to pray with thanksgiving ahead of time. Do you realize that's what you do? When you say, Lord, whatever Your will in this circumstance, whatever Your will in this situation, that's giving thanks in advance. Because you're believing that God's will will be done. It's a way of just saying, thank you now for what you're going to do. Many Thanksgiving tables, no doubt, this last week, heard something like, for what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly grateful. How about we apply that beyond food? How about we pray for what you are about to do, Lord? I am thankful. I thank God 
Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus had a thankful heart. We see this in Paul. Paul, even facing death, honestly can stand up and say, I thank God. And as he wrote in one of his earliest letters, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, more than a decade earlier, he said, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So with a clear conscience, with continuity, with consistency, Paul is thankful, but there's one more. Number four, Paul is thankful for companionship in Christ. Verse four, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. Now, this verse, among a, with a couple of others, has been used to try and say Pastor Timmy was a wimp. As I recall your tears, whiny baby. Longing to see you, having to call the ambulance because you're such a wimp, Timothy. I mean, there are commentators who say, see, this is proof that Timothy was just a little crybaby. And Paul's basically saying, dry your eyes. Timothy's crying again. I've come to have a different opinion, and I shared that with you recently as we began studying through 1 Timothy, and we look at Timothy's life a little bit, you realize, wow, Timothy was Paul's go-to guy to fix church problems. Timothy is the one that Paul often sent to difficult church situations. You can't be a wimp and go into that kind of thing. Timothy was the fixer, (laughs) in a positive way. You know, going into these churches and, and making things right by the sending of the Apostle Paul. So a wimp, I don't think so so much anymore. But I think the reality here is, and what we see in verse 4, is the primary reason that Paul wrote Second Timothy is not to write doctrine, although there's profound doctrine here. Paul is writing this letter from a place of deep loneliness and longing to see Timothy, if if at least one more time. It comes out in the pages, and I want you to pay attention to it over the next, just this month. We're only going to be in this book this month. Pay attention to the heart of Paul as we study, and how he just keeps coming back to this, I just, I want to see you. I'm lonely. I'm in this, I feel so by myself. In fact, if you skip ahead to chapter 4, Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. Make every effort to come to me soon, he says. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me, he says. I'm all alone here with the doc. (laughs) Down in verse 21. Make every effort to come before winter. Paul is thankful for the companionship he has with Timothy. I thank God. I'm longing to see you. Can't wait to see you again. Thankful for Christian companionship. Are you? Are you thankful for Christian companionship? You know, don't miss that one of the best things about showing up here is that you get to get eye to eye and face to face with other Christians. Not just computer to computer. What a sad state of affairs. That's one of the downsides in in the information age that we have and the the value of texting and emailing and and being able to jump on Facebook and and get a hold of people is you're not really face-to-face. I was talking to Hayden about this last night. It's called hate, you know? People hating on different things. That's that's a big deal now. Boy, he said, yeah, I get on Facebook and people are just 
people just hating on, on different people or different things and everybody's ranting and raving and hating and yeah, because, because for the increase of lawlessness, the love of most will grow cold. And there's so much hatred out there. It's hard to see people for who they are until you get face to face. But man, when you get to face to face, when we have the kind of companionship we have in Christ Jesus, where we actually take the time to get our rear ends out of our houses and into our churches, or to meet up for coffee, or to be in someone's living room face to face with other Christians, we need that. Thankful for Christian companionship does the joy of church fill you with thanksgiving. Some could say, well, no. Because actually the church left me all alone when I needed them the most. You ever felt that? Ever felt like, wow. (laughs) I gave and I served and I cared. And then when I needed someone, nobody was there. Where were my cards and letters? Where were my phone calls? I'm not complaining myself over the last four weeks here. Who was there for me? Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you were one who was asked to leave a church. And when you hear about something like Christian companionship, you kind of you wince. Well, guess what? Paul knows how that feels. Paul knew exactly how that felt. If you look in chapter 1, verse 15, you are aware, he says, of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. All who are in Asia, all the Asian churches, turn away from Paul? Uh, We'll look at that more on Wednesday night as well, but the implication here is the churches were embarrassed by Paul. Did you hear Paul's in prison again? Oh man, that's not going to look good for the church. We really got to pull back. Ever been part of a church that pulled back because this guy's sin was just too dark for the rest of us? Paul understood how that felt. Back over in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May they suffer for it. No, he says, may it not be counted against them. How could he say that? Note this, verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. How over... A lifetime now, honestly, because I was born on a Saturday and in church on Sunday. I mean, I've been involved in church and in ministry my whole entire life. How can you still be there, Rick? Haven't you seen church splits and divisions and people hurt other people and, and Christians do stupid things in the name of Jesus? Of course I have. How can you still be there? How can you put up with the mess? Because the Lord always stands with me. And the Lord is here. And the Lord is among us. And I have learned in my short life to look to Him, not to you all. And I love you all. And I have missed you over the last four weeks. But you are not the reason that I follow Jesus. He is. And He is my strength and He is my joy. And so when those days come, and yes they come, where a Christian hurts you, where a brother or sister in Christ deserts you or turns against you, remember, He never deserts you. In fact, of all the things I'm thankful for in my life, it is the fact that God doesn't leave. He doesn't leave. We have this wrong-headed notion, I think, in the world that God departs. 
That the old man up in the sky, as some people so blasphemously say, that that distant being, that divinity off somewhere, well, he's got more important things to do. He's got his hands full. I mean, the Trump administration alone, he's busy trying to hold things together. That was not a political statement. I'm just being funny. How could he possibly have time for me? Maybe you've been one who's thought, oh, I deserve his departure. I would depart me if I were him. You know what? I thank God he doesn't leave. And that's where our strength is and our trust and our hope and our ability to hang with each other even when we offend each other. And we do. We will. We may not intend to or we may intend to, but He is our standard. He is our strength. He doesn't leave. Even if we are faithless, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 11, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. It's who He is. He has to be here. He can't give up on you because He can't give up. It's not in His nature to do anything but be faithful. Jesus said, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Hebrews 13, 5 says, He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. His words, not mine. His promise to you. I will not depart. And I I sit on that for a moment because Christian companionship depends on this truth. Christian companionship that Paul is thankful for with Timothy, and I honestly am thankful for with you. And I hope you are with me. Christian companionship is not man-made. It is God's nature. And Paul sees it and, and, and he shares it with Timothy. And note this, for all these aspects of Paul's thankfulness here, the subject of his thankfulness dials in right at the beginning of verse 5. For I am mindful. I thank God, and he says all these other side things, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. That's what I'm thankful for, Timothy. That's the subject of all of this. That's the point that he's driving to. Now he's Paul, he always has these little side points that he makes along the way. But I am thankful. I thank God for your faith. That's what he's saying. This Christian companionship that he shares with Timothy, this brotherly, father-to-son type love that Paul and Timothy share is because of the love of God, because of the father-son nature of God. Paul has that with Timothy. Timothy's sincere faith. And so Paul thanks God for their companionship in Christ. Thanksgiving is the primary reason that we Christians are called the ecclesia. What do you mean? The ecclesia. That's that Greek word meaning the assembly or the called out. Before the church was founded, the word ecclesia simply was a word used to mean the community came together in one place. The the ecclesia, the assembly. We're going to have an ecclesia, you might say. And when we say the church, that's what we're saying. The gathering. The assembly, the coming together. We gather together. You know that old hymn, we gather together to ask the Lord's blessing, is wrong. It's not right. We do ask the Lord's blessing. And all the other things. And I looked at the words of the hymn, we gather together. And I hate to burst a bubble if you just love that. It's kind of a Thanksgiving hymn. 
And yet there's no thankfulness in it. It's all about what we get when we gather. That's not why we gather together. We are the assembly for one reason and one reason alone, and it is the reason I am so thankful to be here this morning. Please get this. Thanksgiving is why we go to church. It's why we show up. You may have forgotten or you may have had something else on your mind this morning, but it's why you came. You came to say, I thank God. You didn't just come for music, although it was really good this morning. You you, you didn't come for teaching. You didn't come for muffins. What happens if the muffins are stale on a particular Sunday? Oh, we are in trouble because that's why I came. I am here to give thanks. Thanksgiving is our reason for assembling. And because of that, I want to end with another story. Not a legend. A true story here. that took place in the ministry of Jesus. This is from Luke 17. And you can just listen if you'd like to. Luke 17, verse 11. Tells us while He was on His way to Jerusalem, He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And He entered a village. And ten leprous men who stood at a distance met Him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Note that. So remarkable. As they were going, they were cleansed. He didn't cleanse them right then and there. He didn't touch them and their leprosy evaporated. He said, Go show yourselves to the priests. They had to do something. They had to obey. Which strikes me that obedience is very much a part. It's a catalyst to healing. I want to be healed of my leprosy. I want to be healed of my issues, my problems, my sickness. Well, then obey. Do what He says. And they do what He says. All ten of them. Off they go to show themselves to the priests. Now, I love this. Because what he's tying them into here when he says, go show yourselves to the priest, is the Levitical law of purification, get this, for a healed leper. It sat on the books. Leviticus chapter 14. For 1,500 years of Torah law, the law was, if you happen to be a leper and you spontaneously become healed, you got to go do this for your purification rites. What's the big deal? It had never been used. For 1,500 years, this law made no sense. Who, who spontaneously gets healed of leprosy? On the day that you happen to just, just you know, boop, you're no longer a leper, make sure you do this thing. What? Nobody gets healed of leprosy. You get it, and you rot away, man. That's it. One person was healed. In 2 Kings chapter 5, his name was Naaman, and he wasn't even a Jew, he was a Syrian, so the law did not apply. So you've got this dusty old law sitting on the books, 1,500 years, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up and the law goes into effect. The law is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. It's so remarkable to me. Can you imagine being a priest in the days of Jesus? And all of a sudden, lepers from all over the land are showing up, and they look good. They're like me after surgery, you know? (laughs) They're healing up nicely. 
Go show yourselves to the priests. And lepers from all over the kingdom, all over the land, are showing up in Jerusalem at the temple for the purification rites. I mean, I'm sure the priests were going, wait, we have a law for that? Looking back in Torah, reading through, flipping through, trying to find it. And all of a sudden, they're getting healed right and left. Go show yourselves to the priests. So off they go and they are healed. But that's not the end of the story. Watch this. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to Him. Glorifying God, giving thanks to Him, Jesus. And He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Now get this. All ten were healed. You know what that means? It means all ten were believers. They wouldn't have been healed if they didn't have faith. All ten believed Jesus. All ten trusted that what He said to do, they needed to do, and that they would be healed. And they were healed. All ten were healed. But the nine headed off to fulfill the law. And the one Samaritan goes, i got to go say thanks. i got to go back and say thank you. Just one. Approximately 77% of Americans identify as Christians. How many of that 77% attend church weekly? About 10%. 10% of everyone who says, I believe, I'm one of the believers, 10% attend church every week or consistently. I, I equate that to one healed leper out of 10. We live in a culture that is exactly like the story in Luke 17. Christians are just clean lepers coming back to thank God. That's why we're here. It's why we, like Paul, say, I thank God. I come back. I thank God. Because Thanksgiving tastes so good. And this is the savor of the favor. Because back in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 3, when Paul says, I thank God, get this, the word he uses there is charis. It's the word that's often translated grace. But it can also be translated favor or thanks. I favor God. I thank God. Listen, when God gives charis to you, it's grace. When you give charis to God, it's thanks. It's favor. And so when I say savor the favor, the favor I'm talking about isn't only His grace to you, but it's our thanksgiving to Him. Savor that. Savor thanksgiving. How do I do that? Through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Keep thanksgiving on your tongue. Keep thanksgiving in your mouth, on your lips. Keep speaking words of thanksgiving. I thank God. I thank God. I am so thankful to God. That's why we keep coming back. Week after week, healed lepers just wanting to thank God. For His grace. By the way, F. Harris Stowe is uh, actually a Bible name. F. Harry Stowe. It's there in Luke chapter 17, 
verse 16, where it says, He fell on His face at His feet, giving thanks. And if you look at that in the Scriptures, it's epheristo. In ancient Greek, you pronounce it, eucharisteo. It's where we get our word Eucharist. Communion. It's why even today in our worship here at the bridge, we center on communion. Because it's where we come to the Lord to give thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to You. There is not a person here who could not count blessing upon blessing, even for the struggles of life, even for the difficulties that present themselves, even for the hardships, even for sometimes, Lord, the loneliness and the despair that comes into our human minds. We have so much to give thanks for. And if nothing else, Lord, we give thanks to You. We give thanks for relationship with You. We give thanks that You, our God, chose to put on flesh and dwell among us. Chose to to be a servant of servants, even obeying to the point of death on a cross. We give thanks. And we worship You this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.